Chapter Seventeen, Part Two of the House of the Whispering Pines by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Carolyn. Chapter Seventeen, Part Two. Where did you get that? He asked, pulling himself together with the sudden, desperate self-possession that caused Sweetwater to cast a quick, significant glance at the corner as he withdrew from his corner leaving the bottle on the table. That, answered the district attorney, was picked up at a small hotel on Cuthbert Road, just back of the markets. I don't know the place. It's not far from the Whispering Pines. In fact, you can see the clubhouse from the front door of this hotel. I don't know the place, I tell you. It's not a high-class resort, not select enough by a long shot to have this brand of liquor in its cellar. They tell me that this is a very choice quality, that very few private families even indulge in it, that there were only two bottles of it left in the clubhouse when the inventory was last taken, and that those two bottles are now gone, and that— This is one of them. Is that what you want to say? Well, it may be for all I know. I didn't carry it there. I didn't have the drinking of it. We have seen the man and woman who keep that hotel. They will talk if they have to. They will? His dogged self-possession rather astonished them. Well, that ought to please you. I've nothing to do with the matter. A change had taken place in him. The irritability approaching to violence, which had attended every speech and infused itself into every movement since he came into the room, had left him. He spoke quietly and with a touch of irony in his tone. He seemed more the man, but not a whit more prepossessing, and, if anything, less calculated to inspire confidence. The district attorney showed that he was baffled, and Dr. Perry moved uneasily in his seat, until Sweetwater, coming forward, took up the cue and spoke for the first time since young Cumberland entered the room. "'Then I have no doubt you will do us this favor," he volunteered, in his pleasantest manner. "'It's not a long walk from here.' Will you go there in my company, with your coat-colour pulled up, and your hat wool down over your eyes, and ask for a seat in the snuggery, and show them this bottle? They won't know that it's empty. The man is sharp, and the woman intelligent. They will see that you are a stranger, and admit you readily. They are only shy of one man, the man who drank there on the night of your sister's murder. You're a, he began, with a touch of his old violence, but realizing, perhaps, that his fingers were in a trap, he modified his manner again, and continued more quietly. This is an odd request to make. I begin to feel as if my word were doubted here, as if my failings and reckless confession of the beastly way in which I spent that night were making you feel that I have no good in me, and I'm at once a liar and a sneak. I'm not. I won't go with you to that low-drinking hell, unless you make me, but I'll swear. Don't swear. It is unnecessary to say who spoke. 
we wouldn't believe you, and it would be only adding perjury to the rest. You wouldn't believe me? No. We have reasons, my boy. There were two bottles. Well? The other has been found nearer your home. That's a trick. You're all up to tricks. Not in this case, Arthur. Let me entreat you in memory of your father to be candid with us. We have arrested a man. He denies his guilt, but can produce no witnesses in support of his assertions. Yet such witnesses may exist. Indeed, we think that one such does exist. The man who took the bottles from the clubhouse's wine vault did so within a few minutes of the time when this crime was perpetrated on your sister. He should be able to give valuable testimony for or against Elwood Ranelagh. Now you can see why we are in search of this witness, and why we think you can serve us in this secret and extraordinary matter. If you can't, say so, and we will desist from all further questions. But this will not help you. It will only show that, in our opinion, you have gained the rights of a man suspected of something more than shirking his duty as an unknown and hitherto unsuspected witness. This is awful! Young Cumberland had risen to his feet and was swaying to and fro before them like a man struck between the eyes by some maddening blow. God! If I had only died that night, he muttered, with his eyes upon the floor, and every muscle tense with the shock of this last calamity. Dr. Perry, he moaned suddenly, stretching out one hand in entreaty, and clutching at the table for support with the other. Let me go for tonight. Let me think. My brain is all in a whirl. I'll try to answer tomorrow. But even as he spoke he realized the futility of this request. His eyes had fallen again on the bottle, and in its shape and tell-tale label he beheld a witness bound to testify against him if he kept silent himself. "'Don't answer,' he went on, holding fast to the table, but letting his other hand fall. "'I was always a fool. I'm nothing but a fool now.' I may as well own the truth and be done with it. I was in the clubhouse. I did rob the wine vault. I did carry off the bottles to have a quiet spree, and it was to some place on Cuthbert Road I went. But when I've admitted so much, I've admitted all. I saw nothing of my sister's murder, saw nothing of what went on in the rooms upstairs. I crept in by the open window at the top of the kitchen stairs, and I came out by the same. I only wanted the liquor, and when I got it, I slid out as quietly as I could, and made my way over the golf links to the road. Wiping the sweat from his brow, he stood trembling. There was something in the silence surrounding him which seemed to go to his heart, for his free right hand rose unconsciously to his breast and clung there. Sweetwater began to wish himself a million of miles away from this scene. This was not the enjoyable part of his work. This was the part from which he always shrunk with overpowering distaste. 
the district attorney's voice sounded thin almost piercing as he made this remark you entered by an open window why didn't you go in by the door i hadn't the key i had only abstracted the one which opens the wine vault the rest i left on the ring it was the sight of this key lying on our whole table which first gave me the idea i feel like a cad when i think of it but that's of no account now all i really care about is for you to believe what i tell you i wasn't mixed up in that matter of my sister's death i didn't know about it i wish i had adelaide might have been saved we might have all been saved but it was not to be flushed he slowly sank back into his seat no complaint now of being in a hurry or of his anxiety to regain his sick sister's bedside he seemed to have forgotten those fears in the perturbations of the moment his mind and interest were here everything else had grown dim with distance did you try the front door what was the use i knew it to be locked what was the use of trying the window wasn't it also presumably locked the red mounted hot and feverish to his cheek you'll think me no better than a street urchin or something worse he exclaimed i knew that window i had been through it before you can move that lock with your knife-blade i had calculated on entering that way mr Rennelay's story receives confirmation commented the district attorney wheeling suddenly towards the coroner he says that he found this window unlocked when he approached it with the idea of escaping that way arthur cumberland remained unmoved the district attorney wheeled back there were a number of bottles taken from the wine vault some half dozen were left on the kitchen table why did you trouble yourself to carry up so many because my greed outran my convenience i thought i could lung away an armful but there are limits to one's ability i realized this when i remembered how far i had to go and so left the greater part of them behind why when you had a team ready to carry you a i had no team but the denial cost him something his cheek lost its ruddiness and took on a sickly white which did not leave it again as long as the interview lasted you had no team how then did you manage to reach home in time to make your way back to cuthbert road by half-past eleven i didn't go home i went straight across the golf links if fresh snow hadn't fallen you would have seen my tracks all the way to cuthbert road if fresh snow had not fallen we should have known the whole story of that night before an hour had passed how did you carry those bottles in my overcoat pockets these pockets he blurted out clapping his hands on either side of him had it begun to snow when you left the clubhouse? No. Was it dark? I guess not. The links were bright as day, or I shouldn't have got over them as quickly as I did. 
quickly how quickly the district attorney stole a glance at the coroner which made sweetwater advance a step from his corner i don't know i don't understand these questions was the sullen reply you walked quickly does that mean you didn't look back how look back your sister lit a candle in the small room where her coat was found this light should have been visible from the golf links i didn't see any light he was almost rough in these answers he was showing himself now at his very worst a few more questions followed but they were of minor import and aroused less violent feeling the serious portion of the examination if thus it might be called was over and the parties showed the reaction which follows an unnatural restraint or subdued excitement the coroner glanced meaningly at the district attorney who tapping with his fingers on the table hesitated for a moment before he finally turned again upon arthur cumberland you wish to return to your sister you are at liberty to do so i will trouble you no more to-night your sleigh is at the door i presume the young man nodded then rising slowly looked first at the district attorney then at the coroner with a glance of searching inquiry which did not escape the watchful eye of sweetwater lurking in the rear there was no display of anger scarcely of impatience in him now if he spoke they did not hear him and when he moved it was heavily and with a drooping head they watched him go each as silent as he the coroner tried to speak but succeeded no better than the boy himself when the door opened under his hand they all showed relief but were startled back into their former attention by his turning suddenly in the doorway with his final remark what did you say about a bottle with a special label on it being found at our house it never was or if it was some fellow has been playing you a trick i carried off those two bottles myself one you see there the other is i can't tell where but i didn't take it home that you can bet on one more look followed by a heavy frown and a low growling sound in his throat which may have been his way of saying good-bye and he was gone sweetwater came forward and shut the door then the three men drew more closely together and the district attorney remarked he is better at the house i hadn't the heart on your account dr perry to hurry matters faster than necessity compels what a lout he is pardon me but what a lout he is to have had two such uncommon and attractive sisters and such a father interposed the coroner just so and such a father sweetwater hey what's the matter you don't look satisfied didn't i cover the ground fully sir so far as i can see now but well well out with it i don't know what to out with it's all right but i guess i'm a fool or tired or something can i do anything more for you 
If not, I should like to hunt up a bunk. A night's sleep will make a man of me again. Go then. That is, if Dr. Perry has no orders for you. None. I want my sleep, too. But Dr. Perry had not the aspect of one who expects to get it. Sweetwater brightened. A few more words, some understanding as to the morrow, and he was gone. The district attorney and the coroner still sat, but very little passed between them. The clock overhead struck the hour. Both looked up, but neither moved. Another fifteen minutes, then the telephone rang. The coroner rose and lifted the receiver. The message could be heard by both gentlemen in the extreme quiet of this midnight hour. Dr. Perry? Yes, I'm listening. He came in at a quarter to twelve, greatly agitated and very white. I ran upon him in the lower hall, and he looked angry enough to knock me down, but he simply let out a curse and passed straight up to his sister's room. I waited till he came out, then I managed to get hold of the nurse, and she told me this queer tale. He was all in a tremble when he came in, but she declares he had not been drinking. He went immediately to the bedside, but his sister was asleep, and he didn't stay there, but went over where the nurse was, and began to hang about her till suddenly she felt a twitch at her side, and looking quickly, saw the little book she carries there, falling back into place. He had lifted it, and probably read what she had written in it during his absence. She was displeased, but he laughed when he saw that he had been caught, and said boldly, "'You are keeping a record of my sister's ravings. Well, I think I'm as interested in them as you are, and have as much right to read as you have to write. Thank God they are innocent enough. Even you must acknowledge that.' She made no answer, for they were innocent enough, but she'll keep the book away from him after this. Of that you may be sure. And what is he doing now? Is he going into his room tonight? No. He went there, but only to bring out his pillows. He will sleep in the alcove. Drink? No, not a drop. He has ordered the whiskey locked up. I hear him moaning sometimes to himself as if he missed it awfully, but not a thimbleful has left the decanter. Good night, Hexford. Good night. You heard? This to the district attorney. Every word. Both went for their overcoats. Only on leaving did they speak again, and then it was to say, At ten o'clock tomorrow morning. At ten o'clock. End of chapter 17